Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the podcast that helps kill the germs that can cause bad breath. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to Marilyn Damore of Kingston Design Connection. She's kingston.design.connection on Instagram. And uh, I really wanted to have a home cook on before I got too far down this podcast road because that's first and foremost who I am. And even though obviously a big sector of the food business, the food market, the food media ecosystem centers on restaurant cooking and eating, I am always going to come down on the side of the home cook over the going out to eat model of uh, dinner acquisition. Restaurants have a lot to offer us, but I firmly believe that the uh, the cooking and the sharing of uh, homemade food is an important and even profound part of uh, a life well lived. Like me, she's got no training or schooling in cooking of any kind, but uh, a life of travel and eating and learning and cooking at home. And we had a good conversation. She's terrific. So here's me and Marilyn Damore talking at my dining room table. There's a little bit of a gold rush, you know? Yeah, In, oh, in sure. Kingston especially. I'm sure you see it, right? Mm-hmm. Because you deal with buildings and... Uh, you know, we had some friends who were looking for a space, maybe sort of a studio, possibly a rental property, and they were getting things were getting snapped up like the day they got listed. Oh, yeah. Well, now there are bidding wars, which yeah. never used to happen up here. Yeah, it's it's really something. And it makes me really wish that I'd bought something, you know, twelve years ago. Yeah. Just some kind of rundown whatever, and just right. try to you know, work on it over time. Yeah. No, um, we have a property in Midtown, which is the one that we wound up using for the show house because I uh-huh. couldn't get anybody to give me a house <laughs> to do whatever I wanted to. Although now, after the first show house, you know, now people are offering their homes, which is great. Right. Um, but so we bought this rental pro- property in Midtown four years ago. This first thing I did when I moved up here because I was like, I need passive income because yeah. I knew how long I was going to, you know, it's going to take for me to get client work. Um, and you know, there were like vials on the ground, and it was just insane. And a short four years later, it's like a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and he was saying, yeah, you know, but people in Kingston are still kind of struggling. Everyone's complaining. And I said, yes, that's true, except that there are now 30 businesses that are complaining instead of four. Right, yeah. Right. So that's a form of success. I mean, it's well, not, yeah, I mean, nobody's there are more job yet. opportunities, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And the, the ramen place is going to open now. Oh, I heard about that. Where's yeah. that going to be? Do you know? She's going to be on Broadway or just off Broadway, pretty close to um, UPAC. Oh, okay. Okay. So the middle of Broadway. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly what block, oh, but cool. yeah, Very cool. stuff's happening. Okay. So you've been up here four or five years, you said? Four years, yeah. Okay. And so at what point, um, but you came up here as a designer. Yeah, yeah, I came up here. I basically, I did two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. I left my like 20 year career in marketing and PR. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time that I left, I decided to move up here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that this, so I moved up here. I, I had, I think I graduated Parsons like the year before that, so mm-hmm. yeah. In graphic design? In interior design. Interior design, yeah. oh, okay, yeah. so that's always been your thing. Um, you know, it wasn't my thing mm-hmm. for, my, my thing was always writing. You right. know, I was always a writer growing up. And that's what I've, for the for most of my life, it's what I've been paid to do. You know, marketing, thought leadership. You know, editing books, blah blah blah. blah. Right. Um, Particular kind of book. Business. business. I was always in like 
big corporate America. Like my last firm was like over 300,000 people. So like those big global consulting firms. And that's where I spent all of my life, just kind of cycling through all of them because it's a very small kind yeah. of population yeah, yeah, yeah. of people who, sure. you know. But I imagine once you're in, it's pretty great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I loved it because consulting is basically like constantly being in grad school, right? Because we, you have a functional skill. Sure. Like I was a change management person helping companies, you know, if they had a merger, you know, how do you integrate, blah, 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 processes, systems, all that kind of stuff. But you're not an industry expert. So right, every right. time you have a new project, you learn a new business, you learn a new business. And, yeah. and so, and I love that. That's great. And then I wound up going internally when I got tired of dealing with clients. And then I was doing marketing and PR for the consulting firm. Uh, okay. Yeah. So then I was like writing about globalization and stuff like that. So, um, tell me how, uh, well, I guess where'd you, where'd you grow up? Where are you from originally? I'm from Haiti. From Haiti. So mm -hmm. you were born there? Yep, I was born in Haiti. Okay, because you have zero accent. No, we moved to the States when I was uh, eight, uh -huh. almost nine. Oh, okay. And from my understanding, that under the age of 13, 14, you can pretty much yeah. learn any accent. Yeah, yeah. Our brains are growing at yeah. such a rate when we're young. Like my son's learning French now, and it's he's, he's at 14, so he's right, right at the age where the sponge is starting to. Right. But if you keep working it, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, uh -huh. you know, I have good friends who. Um, moved to the States, you know, from elsewhere, Guyana, elsewhere, to go to high school, and mm -hmm. they still have a very heavy, heavy accent. And yeah. it's just interesting how just that little, you know, the difference between four years yeah, and how that no changes. Yeah. My grandmother moved, and her sister both came here uh, during World War II from Germany, and she, they, they had, I think they were either 11 or 14 years apart, I can't remember. And the difference between my grandmother, who oh, had just a, just a faint residual accent, and her older sister sounded like Henry Kissinger. Wow. For, for her <laughs> entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, every, everyone thinks I'm from California, or they think I'm British, because, you know, when it's not your first language, you learn yeah. textbook yeah. You know, pronunciation. No, 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 I would never say British. But, but um, So where did you, did you move to Florida, like so many other people? From we Haiti? moved to New York City. You, to the city, okay. Yeah, so, so we lived in New York City. Uh, well, my parents lived there pretty much, you know, for the, for the entire time until they moved back to Haiti, which mm -hmm. is where they live now. Um, I was in New York City until high school, then mm -hmm. I went to high school in Boston. Oh, cool. And then after that, I went to college in New York. All right. Yeah. And so, so talk to me about how the, uh, the, the sort of culinary element came into play. Um, you know, I was never, ever interested in cooking all mm -hmm. my life. Um, being from Haiti, it's kind of expected that women learn how to cook, and that completely put me off. Yeah. Um, so I, I just was never in the kitchen, never around it. And it wasn't until after I graduated from college, mm -hmm. and I was thinking about this before we, before we sat down, and yeah. I was thinking, you know, I never thought about it before, but it was like two boyfriends that really kind of propelled me, yeah. you know, into cooking. Um, and a first boyfriend in my like mid-twenties worked at a cafe. Yeah. And he used to make a you know variety of things. It wasn't like a full fledged restaurant. It was more like salads and right. cakes and things like that. And so he'd be you know he would be cooking. So I was like, oh okay, whatever. And during that time, I sort of just started paying attention, and just slowly started to realize that what I thought was cooking, which was just drudgery, yeah. was really a very creative process. Mm -hmm. And I tend to like anything creative. You know, I like to explore all sorts of creative fields. Sure. And so I kind of started doing a little bit of cooking here and there. 
And so I was, I was probably like 23, 24 maybe. Mm-hmm. And were you trying all kinds of different things in yeah. terms of cuisines? Yeah, you know, I, that was probably the first and last time that I ever actually used cookbooks because I had mm-hmm. no idea what I was doing. Right. So I bought a bunch of cookbooks for the first time. And, um, you know, being a, a writer, I basically just read them like, like works of fiction. I just read them from cover to cover. Sure, that's how I do it. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I amassed a whole lot of knowledge about food, but I didn't really have any technique at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then at around that same time, so when I graduated from college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I come from a family of lawyers and it was always expected I would do that. And my senior year in college, I sort of panicked and was like, I do not want to be compared to like my father, who's a well-known lawyer for the rest of my life. Like I need to do something else. Um, And so I was kind of bouncing around. I I was in Boston at the time, living in Cambridge. And I was bouncing around, not really knowing what to do. I worked in a bookstore for a year. And then my friends were like, Marilyn, like you need to figure (laughs) out what you're doing. And it occurred to me one day, just, just out of the blue, um, that I might try to work in a restaurant. Yeah. Not really having any skill sets to speak of, but I could speak the language of food. Sure. And I think that kind of helped. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up working in a restaurant um, in Boston for a year. And Which I, one? You know, I can't remember. I was trying to remember. I cannot for the life of me remember. Um, but if I do, I'll let you know. Okay. But, you know, I, I basically did the basic stuff you do when, when, you're, when you're new in a kitchen. You know, I did lots of soups and salads and just lots of prep and things like that. And so I learned a lot of, like, knife skills and just cooking skills and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but... I was only there, I was there shy of a year mm-hmm. because what, I, what got me excited about cooking was the creative process. And it turns out that in a restaurant, it wasn't really that, right? There was a set menu and this yeah, was way back. Orders, yeah, though. exactly. And this was like way back, like in early 2000s, where restaurants were, weren't really doing a lot of se- seasonal menus and things like that. So it was the same basic menu the entire time. And I thought, well, see, this is drudgery. Like, yeah. this is not what I want to do. It's just another job. <laughs> yeah. So I lasted for about a year, um, and then I quit. And then I wound up going into the corporate world. Mm-hmm. But by then, I was really interested in food. So I just basically just, you know, kept up with it. Right. And you went to Paris at some point? Um, yeah, I studied in Paris for a year. And was that culinary? Or no, no, no. That, that was just, a, you know, just me just wanting to have a different experience. A lot of Haitians wind up going to France for school. It's just one of those things that we do because we have yeah. that history. Yeah, and uh, but I was, um, linguistically, though, I mean, I assume you, you did you still speak Creole yeah. in, your, in your family after eight years old when you moved to the States? Yeah, I'm a native French speaker. Right. Um, Creole, I actually didn't learn. They're very different, though. I yeah, thought. they're very different. In fact, Creole, I actually didn't learn until I was in my... 20s okay because when i was going to school in haiti french was the official language okay, so that was your, your and, kind so, of native yeah language. and okay. and we were never allowed to speak creole it was oh, one of those okay. things we were just never allowed to speak anywhere um and was that a sort of class thing in it, haiti? yeah 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 it's, yeah it was a, well, because your dad was a lawyer so you spoke yeah french. yeah you know I, I mean you you speak creole with you know i mean everybody speaks creole in haiti 100 percent of the people maybe about 10 percent, maybe a little less speak french but it was the official language so all the newspapers radios everything's in french and so if you're of a certain class, like I, I've never, like I never heard my grandfather speak Creole a day in his life. Mm, okay. You know, my father, he, he speaks more Creole now with me, but when I was little, he never did. It was just a thing that, that we did. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's the official language. So now, you know, things have changed and yeah. the, the kind of the mentality of, 
of you know Creole being a real language has changed in the minds of Haitians, I think. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that there's an understandable desire to move away from the colonial mm-hmm. identity. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially yeah. given Haiti's history as, as you know the first independent. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. It's it's, yeah. a, it's a kind of a remarkable history. Yeah. Um, and so. Do you have much, I mean, eight's old enough to have pretty good memories, right, of having lived oh, there, yeah. and you can still go back, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I go back all the time, yeah. Um, and so I'm just thinking, like, in terms of, because obviously we're sitting here surrounded by snow, even though it's fairly <laughs> mild, and, and one of the things that I noticed, like, the first time I went to Hawaii, um, for example, you know, and ate a pineapple, and it was kind of like the first time I skied in powder in California after right. growing up skiing in Vermont on yeah, ice, yeah, you know? Yeah. I was like, why the fuck would I ever eat a pineapple again <laughs> if I'm not in Hawaii? This, right. is, this is the stuff we get here is just garbage. It tastes like cardboard. And so I'm always interested in how people from tropical or subtropical mm-hmm. places, um, like how the cooking that you associate with home and youth right. and, you know, you know, how you do that here, given that, that whatever you're getting is kind of tired and old and yeah. not as fresh, you know? Yeah, you know, one of the things that is always fun for me when I bring my American friends to Haiti is to reintroduce them to fruits they think they know. So, for example, people think our grapefruits are actually oranges mm-hmm. because they're not that big mm-hmm. and they're a lot brighter. And a lot of times you'll get somebody a glass of lemonade and they'll, and they'll think it's orange juice mm. because colors are just deeper, mm-hmm. flavors are, are sweeter. And so it, it basically becomes a different fruit altogether. Yeah. Um, you know, I, tr- I cook seasonally and like, for example, I love tomatoes, but I really don't eat them until the summer because yeah. what's the point? It's sort of like just eating nothing. Right. So, you know, the good thing about growing up in New York is that there's such a huge population of Caribbean people. And so you can find food stuff, you know, that is stuff that you'd find from home. So it won't taste exactly the same, the imported stuff, of course. Right, right. Um, but, but it's close enough. But it's close. And yeah, in I fact, used to get sugar cane yeah. in the Bronx mm-hmm. when I worked there. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, until I left my parents' home in New York, I rarely, we never ate American food because mm-hmm. like a lot of immigrants, you know, you live in America, but inside your home it's your culture all the time you know music language food right. everything right so and, but you didn't help cooking growing no up never did because i wasn't interested right. um you know my kind of second foray into cooking after the year in the restaurant came oh like a dozen years later at least um you know because i enjoyed cooking when i started working and i got my own apartment i would invite people over for dinner parties and i would cook and because at the time I wasn't really kind of a, the kind of person who just cooked for myself because I like to make lots of different types of things, right? Sure. And um, one day I, I had invited some folks over for dinner and there was someone whom I didn't know, a friend of a friend. And he said, hey, you know, could I ever get you to come to my house mm-hmm. and cook for me for a dinner party? And I said, well, yeah, I guess. And that one person sort of word of mouth got around and I wound up having a catering company in the city for like two years and it was all word of mouth I never advertised it was something that I did I still had my day job yeah um but it kind of mushroomed into this thing and then eventually I was doing cooking classes and like all sorts of things came out of it yeah um and it only really ended when I decided that I had a huge interest in interior design and I mm-hmm. went back to school and I couldn't really have you a day to job do that yeah fully to that yeah that makes yeah. sense it's it's interesting to me um when you you sort of because it was it was sort of the same for me I didn't really get serious about 
about cooking until I was, well, I, I did my senior year of college in Italy, and so that really opened uh, up, yeah. you know, because it's just such a, a foundation of the culture, and it's just so freaking good, you know. Um, but when you sort of tumble to it later in life and realize that you just sort of have, it's sort of like you, you realize you had a musical ear and you could have played the piano exactly. for your whole life, yep. but you come to it later because you had other things on your mind yep. or you really thought you were somebody else. Yep, no, that's for sure. And then all of a sudden you realize you, you sort of have an ability here and you have the ability to teach and communicate mm-hmm. on the basis of your own self-taught experience, mm-hmm. which is, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah, no, I mean, it's exactly like you're saying. I never, because I never had an interest why would I think I would have any kind of natural aptitude for it? Right. And it was, I was so surprised when it turned out that I actually, huh, like not only do I like to cook, but I actually can cook. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But what you were saying about Italy, I mentioned before that there were kind of two boyfriends who kind Mm -hmm. of propelled me into cooking. The second one was this Italian boyfriend that I had in my early 30s. And he, just like me, is an immigrant from Italy. So his entire family, except for his immediate nuclear family, Lives, still lives in Italy. Uh-huh. Nobody else ever moved besides them. And so we would go to Italy every single year for like seven plus years. Wow. And what part? Where was he from? He's from Rome. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, that is where, like, if I, if I had to say I had any kind of formal training, mm-hmm. that would be that. Because mm-hmm. basically I would sit with family members and just learn how to make stuff. Yeah. And, it, and, and that's it, the way to do it. Oh, my gosh. It was Watch amazing. Watch grandma make pasta. Yeah, it was amazing. And that really... That gave me the fundamentals of cooking because Italian cooking, you know, people think it's really simple because for, for the, unlike French cooking, there are fewer ingredients in mm-hmm. a dish, but that really kind of makes you focus on each and every ingredient and what it brings to the it table does. and how you kind of marry flavors because you're not working with a whole lot. That's right. And if any one of those ingredients is subpar, it's not, it just, the whole thing falls down. Yep, exactly. I, I always used to say, and granted there are different kinds of French cooking, but if you take the sort of classical, you know, certainly haute cuisine, and Italy doesn't have an analogous haute cuisine. No, no, I mean, no. maybe Massimo Bottura is making it now, but it, it, yeah. that, there's no tradition of this aristocratic cooking. But to me, the great difference from an educational point of view between the two is that French cooking uses a large team of people to transform things into what they are not. Ah, and Italian yeah. food takes things and makes them exactly what they are. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, no, it's for sure because you, you look at an Italian dish, you can see everything that went into it. Whereas a French dish, there's like yeah. 20 ingredients in that one sauce. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it took all damn day to reduce. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. and it had to be clarified, and yeah. and you know there there are ele- there's elements of technique, but like you were saying, it's really when you're making penne alla arrabbiata, there are four things. Yep, exactly. You know, and if your garlic's kind of brown and gross, it's just you're gonna taste it. Yeah, absolutely. No, but, but that to me, because Haitian cooking coming out of that French culture, mm-hmm. our cooking is also layers of spices, lots of different steps of cooking. Yeah, well, you posted about, what's it called, soup jumeau on yes. New Year's Day, which mm-hmm. is the sort of, and it's yeah. a celebration of independence right. and the new year. And, and so talk to me about that, because that seemed like there's a lot going on in that. Yeah, set. you know, so to make, so basically it's a squash puree. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of make that. And then there's a whole bunch of vegetables and meats that go into it. Mm-hmm. But really what you're doing is, you know, you're roasting your meat separately, you're browning it. You're making... And that's beef, usually. And that's beef, usually. Yeah, it's always beef, actually. Okay. Um, some people like pig's feet, but usually it's beef. Okay. But then you're also having to make the puree of squash, and that's a whole other separate dish mm-hmm. you're making now. And in Haiti, everything we use is fresh. We don't use anything processed. Okay. So 
And then once you have those two separate components, you bring them together. Mm-hmm. But now you're starting to add a variety of root vegetables and other vegetables. You're also adding pasta, different cooking times. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Haitian cooking takes a long, long time to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of an all-day bubbling. Yeah, you know, you know, I mean, you you you'll be making that for a good couple of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure, for sure. And it, and in fact, you know, the one of the big things about Haitian cooking is there's a lot of prep work the day before. Mm-hmm. So, for example, all of our meats, we usually will make a, you know, a special marinade depending on, you know, whether it's meat, fish or chicken. Yeah. Um, you make that the night before and that sits overnight so that, you know, the flavors can kind of get into the, mm-hmm. the meat. We eat rice and beans pretty much every single meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the beans have to be soaked and parboiled overnight. So Haitian cooking is sort of lengthy. It's not the kind of thing, for example, that you can come home at five o'clock and say, I'm going to make dinner. It's not spontaneous. Yeah, you have to yeah. know the day, the day ahead. Yeah, you, you have to know what you're making. It has to be planned out, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was interested to learn a while ago that uh, uh, barbecue is a Taino word and actually yes. is very probably originated in yep. Haiti, which yep. is pretty fantastic. Yep. Yeah, we have um, we have two sets of Native Americans in Haiti. We have Carab, Car, Car, I always say this right, caribou and arawak okay um and the tainos are more south america but all of those native americans have a huge tradition of barbecue yeah and that's something that we do in haiti as well but it looks very different sure yeah well i think originally it was wooden a wooden grill so it had to be much higher off the fire yeah it was really smoking in a lot of ways yeah yeah and we don't really use sauces it's more kind of dry rub mix Uh that you'll find most of the time huh that's cool and so what um just because I also I spent time in Rome and, and I'm curious, like what were the, what were the sort of transformative experiences, the light bulbs, you know, that you just came home and you've cherished ever since, or became your instant standards. Mm, let's see. Well, you know, Rome specifically has a huge history with salt, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I learned very early on was just proper seasoning. Mm-hmm. That how mo- most food is very much undersalted. You know, I, I think American cuisine as a, as a whole tends to not have as much salt and sort of what that does to food, yeah. meaning that if you have a dish and you're almost done and you taste it and, and you think, well, you know what? I thought I added a lot of sort of spicy chilies in there, but I'm not tasting it. Right. right? You add salt, all of a sudden, all that stuff just mm-hmm. comes into the forefront. Yeah, yeah. And so the role of salt in carrying and bringing forward other spices was something that I, which is a revelation to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too, actually. Uh, it's remarkable. They use it occasionally for me uh, at a restaurant in Italy or something. It'll be just a tiny bit too much. Right, yeah. Um, but more often than not, it's it's really, it really does amp everything up. And it makes the brightness of the tomatoes and the sweetness mm-hmm. of the mozzarella and all the other things, the kind of beautiful toasty earthiness of good pasta it, it just amplifies it all no absolutely yeah i mean we always think that salt brings saltiness to the dish and in fact once it starts to do that that's, there's probably too much salt right. right it's really meant to kind of amp up other flavors yeah. in your dish yeah, yeah. and so the um did you travel throughout the country as well or you mostly stayed in rome with his family no you know um italians are very regional people and in fact my, my roman boyfriend he had never had Asabugo wow. until I introduced him to it because it's not Roman food. Right, right, right. Yeah, to go up north. Uh, yeah, so so um, his mom's from Tuscany. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his dad's from Rome, but so that's the cuisine that he knew, and so we basically kind of stayed just in the Rome region because you know that's what you do. That's what you do. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what? Um, and that was a while ago. And uh, have you traveled extensively elsewhere? To, 
um, especially from in a play, in a way that made a real impact, you know, in terms of your cooking. Yeah, you know, so I've become this person slowly over the years. I've always loved to travel, and I speak you know, a few different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found myself over the years, you know, going on vacation ostensibly, you know, for cultural experience. And literally, all I would do is eat and bring back just suitcases full of food. Yeah. So, um, so for example, I was in Japan for a month, mm, nice. a number of years ago, and that was also a whole other revelation in terms of cooking. And I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this is just cr- the craziest, strangest, just food that I've ever seen. I had no frame of reference for it whatsoever. Yeah. I had a good friend of mine who, and that was why I was able to stay there for a month, she was teaching English mm-hmm. in Japan. And so because she was working during the day, she sort of put me in touch um, with a couple of people, you know, to help me sort of learn how to make things, like teriyaki, you know, basic stuff. But I came back with suitcases full of bonito flakes and all sorts of things. Yeah. Because again, you know, Japanese cooking just looks deceptively simple. It does. You know, I mean, you look at a clear sort of broth and you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Yeah. And just then you start really thinking about what's in that. And and that that was just really interesting to me. I read a a story. I can't remember. It was probably in one of my Japanese cookbooks. But the the chef said that he was working, um, doing something with a French chef, you know, at an event where, you know, a bunch of chefs were doing something. And. The French chef kind of scoffed at his dashi, right? Because he just grated some bonito mm-hmm. and, com- and put some kombu in a thing and let it sit for 20 minutes, and that was the stock. Right. The French, you know, the French <laughs> chef was typically condescending uh, about this, you know, instant broth the guy was making. And then he, he very patiently explained to him that the, 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 the processing, the salting, the curing, the fermenting of this bonito takes a year and is done under incredibly precise and careful right. circumstances and like the finest prosciutto. Um, and so all the labor is front-loaded. Right. The making of dashi is a 20-minute operation, but there's a year of work right. and care that goes into um, the... And, and a lot of Japanese do the same thing with miso. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of these things... Um, and I'm a huge fan of working this way because, as you know, you know the garden, and so you make the pickles, and I've been making a lot of misos and other ferments and things. And so there's vinegar hiding in the corners <laughs> here. Um, and so, yeah, it looks easy when you just open a jar and pour it out. But... Yep. The, so it's a completely sort of inverse way of looking at it, where it's not three days in the kitchen to make a sauce. It's yeah. a whole year. Um, but then it's easy in the moment yeah. and quick and, and can be very spontaneous, which I love. Yeah. You know, the other thing I love about the whole kind of Japanese cooking culture is the fact that people have, have, have apprenticeships, mm-hmm. you know, like it, like it's such a serious endeavor. And yeah. people spend years studying yeah you know, this cuisine. Yeah, like it's two years before they even let you make the rice. Oh my gosh. Something. I mean, just that reverence yeah. for food was was just something that, that I just never seen before. Yeah. yeah. It, and it's interesting because it, it, it also, I think, it does make for a, a culinary culture that can be very resistant to change because it's so by the book and yeah. there's such a commitment of time to learn it this way. I think that was kind of French food's undoing for a little while is it just got so bogged down in its own you know, ritual and its own mystique that, that uh, a lot of people kind of passed it on the inside when it wasn't paying attention, yeah. including Japan and northern Spain and some other places. That, um, and, and so what I'm, what I'm really interested in now is, because when I was at art school, I really did not enjoy postmodernism. Um, I thought it was cynical. Um, and I did not think that Mickey Mouse and Rembrandt were the same, <laughs> and that they should not be treated the same. Right. Um, 
and you know I understood that a lot of it has to do with advertising and media and semiotics and as a painter that wasn't interesting to me even though that was the thing in painting was to start bringing in these media and right. pop culture references and and collage and pastiche and all that stuff but it wasn't for me but now like as a cook especially as a home cook where I can do things differently every time and I have no pressure to repeat a dish you know because that's what my customers want right um you know and I only do three covers a night because <laughs> uh, so I can I can work small um but I'm really interested in mixing things up and grabbing a little bit from here and a little bit from there based on what my garden's throwing at me and what's coming out of the mm -hmm. freezer and and so I'm actually kind of pretty euphoric about the lack of rules and structure and the ability to just now pick and choose from all over the world on a given night. No, absolutely. No, uh, I'm, I'm the same way. You yeah. know, I, I'm very, I love cookbooks mm -hmm. and I have a fair number of them and yeah. I love to read them yeah. as inspiration. Mm -hmm. But And then put them back on the shelf. And then the put shelf. them back on the shelf. Yeah. I've been having, you know, this huge love affair with Indian spices. Mm -hmm. And so I will make a bolognese and I will add some Indian spices to it. But, but you know, just recognizing sweet spices and, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to bring out of that because one of the things for me that I love to do, for example, is any dish that has milk, I love to add nutmeg because mm -hmm. they just work so well together. Sure. Yeah. And so now, you know, I'm starting to use cardamom and sort of other sweet kind of, you know, Indian, Asian, you know, spices. Mm -hmm. And I love that, you know, I, I, I love the idea that you can kind of translate these flavors and see what kind of new flavors, you know, pop up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those sweet pie spices are pretty uh, fascinating to me because um, you can find them, I think, used most interestingly along the entire length of what was the old spice route. Mm -hmm. So all the way from Southeast Asia to Morocco and everywhere in between has some kind of really intensely spiced lamb dish, for example. And... You can nail down the geography of where the dish comes from if you've eaten enough around different right, right, places right, right, and right. restaurants. But but it's it's a you know it's a continuum, right? Yeah. It's a slider that you can move left or right, as it were. No, absolutely. To get a little more North Africa or a little more Malaysia, yeah. um, and and obviously you can pull things in from other other areas. But I love that. I love that um, that kind of open source quality too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm interested. Talk to me a little bit about Haitian spices because I know you made. Uh, you also posted about piklis the other day. Is oh, that yeah. how you pronounce it? Piklis. Piklis. Yeah. Um, and uh, in Belize, I know they make a. It's just onion and habanero in white vinegar. Piklis is a little more salad-like, right? It's got cabbage and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's ferociously hot, right? Um, you know. Haitians tend to like spicy food, mm -hmm. and the whole point, piklis is really only meant to be eaten with fried foods. Okay. And the whole point is that that spicy vinegariness kind of cuts through the fat. Right. So it's not the kind of thing you're going to have with a stewed... So you wouldn't you put know. it in the pumpkin soup. So you wouldn't put it in pumpkin soup, for example. Right. Um, so it becomes... So for, like, like the, I have this funny story, this friend of mine who's Korean... Mm -hmm. And so she sees this jar of piklis in the refrigerator and she thinks it's like kimchi. She's like, uh -huh. no, it's just kind of, you know, and she takes a big amount of it and she puts it on her plate. And my mother's like, what is she doing? Um, but yes, it looks like sort of, you know, a coleslaw or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you only really have little tiny little bites of it. And that's why it's so highly, highly spiced. I see. And in terms of like the, the more sort of foundational spices, like you're talking about these sweet, um, what I like to call just sort of the pie spices, you know, the kind of cinnamon clove, allspice mm -hmm. cardamom. Um, the, is there, cause, cause the Caribbean is a very far flung, it's a very large, uh, 
area with a lot of smaller cuisines, mm-hmm. some of which have very specific identities and flavors and things that you know aren't done very differently than elsewhere. Um, do those particular spices, because you were talking about kind of layering the flavors mm-hmm. in the pumpkin soup, does it have, um, are there any particular kind of identifiable combinations or origins that say come from, uh, you know, sort of like what you would taste in West Indian food or Right, you know, right, something, right. you know, like the Jamaican meat. I know mm-hmm. Tahiti has meat patties that are different from Jamaican right, meat right, patties. Right. I'm just curious because it's, it's a region I don't right. know that much about culinarily. Um, you know, Haitian food, if you look at it, it looks very similar to Jamaican food. Mm-hmm. A lot of people might confuse the two. Um, our spices tend to be a little bit different. We use cloves a lot mm-hmm. in rice and beans and stews and things like that. It's a very big spice. Um, we use a lot of green kind of herbaceous sort of flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, everybody has a mortar and pestle and mm-hmm. we're always kind of pounding scallions and parsley and garlic. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of sort of pesto type so, so, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then that, that then gets incorporated into, you know, some kind of dish. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we don't use a lot of sweet spices. You know, mm-hmm. clove is really kind of the only one in kind mm-hmm. of savory dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fair amount of sour orange. We mm-hmm. have... Um, I don't ever see them here, but they're they're called sour oranges because yeah, they're not. Americans don't like sour, you yeah. know, bitter flavors. You can get them in Italy and, and right, places right. that grow citrus. Yeah. You can get them. They use a lot. And and they're really matte. You know, it looks like a regular orange, mm-hmm. but you just don't want to bite into it. Right. And it's really met as a flavoring for savory dishes. Um, and yeah. so a lot of that kind of brightness comes from sour oranges. A lot of it comes from a lot of various kind of green herbs. Mm-hmm. Sour orange is, I think, the principal acid in Yucatan, for example. Oh, really? Like oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The, 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 oh, the, the lamb barbacoa from Yucatan is, I think, it is the acid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and the, obviously a lot of the great Italian kind of liqueurs in Amari are based on yes. that even sour and bitter orange kind yeah. of vibe. That's that's interesting. So, so how, like, as you... Um, as you kind of mix and match, do you make things that kind of then answer your own personal canon you're like well this one's a keeper Um, or do you just kind of keep evolving and improvising as you go you know my partner tells me all the time that i should start writing recipes down because i just make them up yeah um and i don't ever do that Mm -hmm. which means that every time i make it it's a little different and i kind of really like that idea um you know if if i were to say i had basic principles you know that italian sort of principle of using really really good ingredients yeah so that way you don't have to use as many ingredients you can showcase three ingredients and it can feel like an amazing full satisfying meal exactly um so that's so that for me is a big part of it Mm -hmm. i always tend to bring in sort of haitian preparation techniques Mm -hmm. um like i'm not the kind of person for example that would make you know chicken without marinating it overnight right you know I just I just come from that culture it's sure. it's, it's something that I'm very used to and so that that kind of gets carried through mm-hmm. even though the marinade may be different even though the marinade may be different exactly right. but you like exactly. the way the flavor gets in yeah yeah exactly um, but generally what really excites me about cooking is even though I will make the same dish with the same basic ingredients because I didn't write it down mm-hmm. and I'll make it a month later and it's identifiable as, oh yeah, Marilyn made this a month later, but it's right. different and I yeah. love that. Yeah, I do too. You know? I do too. And I'm always, I, I because I 
blogged for a very long time. I did write things down, but it was never measurements in that way. It was right. like, it was always like prose recipes, you right. know, which which are great if you already know how to cook. But people like I got so many complaints, and nobody, you know, it's really hard to build an audience if you don't write down individual teaspoons of everything. Which I have a, made me nuts. I have a question for you though. Yeah. So I have this idea in my head for a cookbook because because in Haiti we don't use measurements. Yeah. At all. And so if you're learning how to cook in Haiti, what they'll tell you is you smell when the rice is done, yeah. you taste it, and you yeah. taste it, and you taste it, and you taste it. Yeah. And if you're not sure about, you know, people are always confused about, well, how much rice to how much water? What's the ratio? Well, you look at it, yeah. and it will tell you what it needs. And so to me, part of the reason why, and maybe subconsciously this is part of the reason why I never really relied on cookbooks, mm-hmm. is because I feel that at a certain point, you don't understand the principles Absolutely. because you're following recipes. And so one of the things that I think would be amazing would be to have a cookbook that has sort of measurements for, you know, the basic ingredients, but not for the spices, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Right? Be- because it's different for everyone. It is. Right? You're, everybody's palate is different. And also, if your coriander is like six months old also six <laughs> years old because yeah. you're at your mom's house. Yeah. It tastes like sawdust. You're yeah. going to need maybe a little more, or maybe you leave it out, honestly. No, absolutely. It's, it's got absolutely. nothing in it. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I think that there's there's a type of cookbook that could actually teach people not just about principles of cooking, you know, but also about what their palate is. Yeah. You know? I, I think I'm, I'm always surprised at how afraid so many people are of their own kitchen and... uh it's, you know, especially, look, if you have 20 people coming over, you know, the boss's boss and his wife are coming for dinner, right? I mean, obviously, you want to do something right, and you probably want to play it safe. But, you know, if it's just you and your family, the stakes really couldn't be much lower. Right, right. You know, so, oh, my God, you ruined dinner. All right, let's order takeout. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but people associate, I think they just watch on TV, and it's associated with so much kind of macho virtuosity and and just ridiculousness that uh, the the I really believe that, that over-reliance on recipes makes you a bad cook. Yeah. Well, it certainly makes makes for a less knowledgeable cook. Like, yeah. like it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because you would think that wouldn't be the case. Well, it's like a musician who can only play with a score in front of her. Right. Exactly. But you take away the sheet music and she just... Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Unless it's committed to memory. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, but, you know, it's... it's and I have never been... Um, in, certainly in cooking, I've always been much more like a jazz guy than a classical guy, right? I don't need the sheet music. I want to make things up, right? And that's a personality thing. And I think it's also, you know, it's sort of like you either have a musical ear or you don't. And so people without are going to need a little extra help and mm-hmm. guidance. Um, but the this whole, like, by the book, like, terror, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I don't have cilantro. I can't make this. And it's like, yeah. of course you can, you yeah. know? Uh, so, yeah, but I think... You know, people are afraid. People also don't have necessarily a lot of time. Everyone's overworked and, you know, they get home and they're beat. And, yeah. and so there's there's a lot of different pressures. And I and I, I'm, I try when I'm teaching, I always try to meet people where they are um, and then give them lots of encouragement mm-hmm. uh, because people get yelled at enough in their lives. <laughs> and people yell at themselves enough, too. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Uh, but yes, I agree with you. I think that, that some kind of split the difference situation, like here's... Here are the nuts and bolts of this dish, right? right? Here are the three things that you can't do wrong or you're making something else. <laughs> right. Um, 
But then, yeah, you can pull it this way. You can pull it that way. Mm-hmm. What have you got? What's I, that's what I always say, man, dinner should start outside. You know, <laughs> yeah. what's in your yard? Do you yeah. have dandelions? Yeah. Cool. Let's pick them, you yeah. know? Absolutely. Uh, provided you don't spray your lawn, right? Which right. people shouldn't do. Um, and so I, I'm always, in my own tiny way, trying to get people to kind of invert their relationship. Um, whereas rather than starting with, like, here's the recipe, so here's my shopping list, I say, go outside, take a little walk, see what's growing. What kind of mood are you in, you know? <laughs> And is there any food in your yard or garden? Did you go to the farmer's market this week? Did you get a CSA box? Right. That's where you start. What's in it? Okay, well, you know, do you have a protein? Do you have a few different greens? Do you want to do a side thing? You're making... you, And then you, you build it from what's in front of you, not from this idea of, I want Mexican tonight. Right, Therefore, right. I have to go to the store and buy all these things. Which actually makes the, the job harder. Yeah, Right? It does. If you do it the other way. And then way, they don't right? have it. You're like, oh my God, <laughs> right. they don't have it. What am I going to do? Yeah. Dinner's yeah. ruined, right? And you haven't yeah. even turned on the stove. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so where do you... Uh, where do you shop? Like, how do you acquire ingredients, given that you're really into freshness and, and oh, top quality? You know, I cook probably every other day. Mm-hmm. And I hate, hate with a passion food shopping. I hate going to the supermarket. I do too. Yeah. And in the winter, I'm kind of stuck going to the supermarket. Um, you know, I, I moved up here four years ago from Brooklyn. So mm. for the first time four years ago, I had a vegetable garden. Oh, yeah. you, you know, in Haiti, we have a huge vegetable garden. Um, but I never had one of my own. Right. Right. And so every winter, I think, Marilyn, this is a year that you need to do some winter gardening. Mm. And I can never get myself to do it because, you know, it's cold. Like, it's not, it's not as much fun. No, you know, out not. in the sunshine, having a good time it's in the garden. It's not as much fun. I mean, it's not hard to build hoops um, and keep some spinach and parsley and a few really tough, some scallions, some, like, indestructible yeah. stuff going. Until you get two feet of snow. And then you're like, oh, my God, I'm not shoveling out the fucking garden. It's just like, I'm going to the store. Um, and but you know there are a few winter veggie CSAs that you can you can hook up with. Right, and, right, right. Um, I this is the year I did not do any hoops because I traveled in November, and I just couldn't get to it. And and of course we've had this apart from like a couple of blizzards we've had like the mildest winter. Right. So I could have so much going on outside right now, and That's I'm true. kicking myself. Yeah, we could have actually. I mean, today, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, but so so how do you? Uh, when you were in Brooklyn, did you shop at the shop at the co-op? And um, yeah, you know, I joined a co-op when I was in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brooklyn, you know, has so much access to just fresh fruit and vegetables because yeah. of, of of the ethnic variety that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, I never, I barely ever stepped. I don't think I ever stepped in a supermarket really. Yeah. But also, all the farms up here in the Hudson Valley yeah. deliver to the city. Yeah, this yeah, is, that's also, where they make their also, money. Also, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's been interesting. Like every winter, I have this conundrum about how am I cooking. Since I don't like supermarkets, yeah, and yeah, I don't yeah. like the stuff that I find in supermarkets. Right. So, so tell me how you how you navigate that. Oh, well, not very well. I yeah. mean, I you know you I, I so I've been following your cook blog, and so the idea of preserving mm-hmm. is really interesting to me. It's something that I only started doing last year mm-hmm. um, because I just had an abundance of everything and yeah. I just didn't know what to do with it. So I started pickling, and mm-hmm. then that led into making chutneys. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has kind of been sort of my go-to strategy for the winter that though I'm not growing vegetables, I can have some things that will amp up the flavor of kind of just your bland, kind of grayish thing that you right, find in the supermarket, right. yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. So what kind of pickles did you make? Oh gosh, I've been pickling everything and anything. Vinegar, um, fermentation, both? No, just vinegar. Just yeah, vinegar. fermentation, I know nothing about that. That's something that that, that is, is actually very interesting to me because I love kimchi. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I'll so give you some when we're done here. Oh, that'd be wonderful, I'd love that. But yeah, so you know, I started out just pickling cucumbers, just making regular pickles. Yeah. 
And then after a while, I thought, well, Marilyn, you can pickle anything, mm -hmm. right? So radishes, eggplant, zucchini, et cetera. I just started pickling everything. Yeah. And then at a certain point, I started making kind of, you know, differentiating between things that tasted better as a pickle versus as a chutney, uh -huh. you know? Um, fruits that needed more cooking, vegetables that needed more cooking that really just didn't lend themselves to like a quick pickle. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been fun. It's been a good, yeah, I've been enjoying it. And it kind of helps me sort of deal with the drudgery of winter cooking. <laughs> well, they're super bright, right? They stay yeah, crunchy yeah, yeah. and a radish stays pink, yeah. right? And so the, it, does a, it does provide a nice pop of color and it tastes, the texture's fresh. Yeah. In the case of roots like carrots yeah. and radishes and things. So yeah. that helps. Yeah, especially because in the winter I, I wind up making lots and lots of stews. Yeah. So it's nice to have like a nice, bright, fresh something. Mm -hmm. you know. Have you uh, gone to like, the Kingston Winter Market? Which is, I haven't. You know, I keep meaning to check that it's out. It's worth it. I mean, by the time you get to around now, it's kind of heavy on the rutabagas. But, um, you know, they people do keep some apples, um, root veg, and you can get some cabbages. Some people have greenhouses. So right. it's definitely... You know, it's not a broad spectrum, and it's not the happiest produce you've ever seen, but um, but it is from here, right? And it is, you know, a sort of it is a, an authentic expression of this time and place, right? Yeah, um, and you can feel good about giving a, a farmer who's you know for whom winter is a lean period, right? Helping them out, so I try to get down there when yeah, I can. That's a good point. Uh, no, my, especially in a year where I have nothing growing right, right. now because I, I didn't build my hoops. Now my next project is. Um, my partner has a garage, which was his workshop, and then we um, purchased um, a shipping container oh, wow. that we're fashioning into his new workshop. Oh, cool. And so I've been eyeing that little garage, and I've been thinking greenhouse. Mm -hmm. um, this is at your house. This is at my house. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, you know what? Hmm. And you know, like I have raised beds outside, yeah. but for the winter, I could just like dig right into the dirt inside the structure. Oh, because it's know? a dirt floor. Yeah, yeah, because it's a dirt, uh, and just grow yes, stuff, and you so could. that, and so I'm trying to kind of convince him that that's kind of the next thing. So you that want to take the roof off and make it clear? You want to put grow lights in? Or? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I think the structure probably would be like a greenhouse with lots of windows and things like that, but I think once you get inside, there's no reason why I can't just have the dirt and actually just make rows in the dirt themselves because it will also stay warmer in the winter. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really just a question of getting the light because the low winter sun right. is going to have trouble making it through a sort of conventional window right. configuration. Yeah, so I have some research to do on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you could, you could certainly, if you have a south-facing wall, you could kind of rip off a big chunk of that and do like a wall of windows or even just, right. even just kind of um, do a shed greenhouse extension off the side there. Oh, that's a good idea. Uh, so that, and that, that's, that's all glass or polycarbonate or whatever right. you choose as a material. Um, and so that your whole south side becomes a kind of shed roofed greenhouse oh, situation. Oh, I love that and idea. You can keep the, the bulk of the garage just, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's, ah. That may be, because the, the trick with the winter sun is, is, it's not that it's not that strong. It's mostly just that it's super low. Right. And so it's going to hit your, it's, your neighbor's house is going to block it or the trees or whatever. So okay. trying to find the angle where you can get that. Right. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's kind of the main consideration, I think. But that's super exciting. I mean, it's this house is oriented in more or less exactly the wrong direction <laughs> for me to have a stuck greenhouse on the side because right. south is like there. And so it's the corner of the house and it's the corner that faces uphill into the forest. So it's just not really right. a thing here. 
mm-hmm. maybe the next house. But so I do my little hoops where the sun actually reaches in that corner right. of the garden right. in the winter. Yeah, it makes a difference. I mean, I was so excited. I came home from my Italy trip in November on the day of that gigantic blizzard. But it didn't last long because it got really warm after that. And so as soon as the snow was gone, I went out because I'd been behind and I pulled up a whole bunch of daikon and uh, carrots and other things. Oh, wow. And I made like a, uh, I made a daikon kimchi. I made a couple kinds of kimchi with all this super late stuff. The ground was just starting to freeze. You know, I was kind of beating on it with the right. shovel a little bit. But I got it out and, you know, I made fresh food <laughs> in, in late November wow. around Thanksgiving. And it's... You know, my hands were numb and it took an hour to warm them back up again and everything. But I realize this may not extend across to everybody else in the world. But for me, it was really just exciting. It's so satisfying to get out and to still connect with the ground at a time of year when it seems off limits because it's, you know, cold and hard. No, for sure. You know, I mean, so I've had a vegetable garden now for four years Mm -hmm. and... I never get over, and even if it's, even because I, I grow a lot of the same vegetables, and then I always kind of grow a bunch of new stuff every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether it's stuff that I've grown before or not, the excitement—you know—it's like a kid on Christmas morning. Yeah. You know, when the flowers first come out, and if it's a new vegetable, I don't know what what color the flower is going to be or how big it's going to be. Yeah. And then like digging in the dirt and finding stuff. I mean, it's just so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and and a lot of. Um... We now have a few kind of local native seed companies that are, that yeah. are breeding for this area, yep. and they're doing some really exciting stuff. Dan Barber uh, has got his row seven seeds. You know about them? Oh, I didn't realize he had a seed. Line. Yeah, well, he and I think it's Jack Alger, the head gardener okay. at Stone Barns, um, have been working really hard to select for certain traits. Right. Uh, for example, they have a kind of a zucchini. It is a zucchini, but... It's shaped like a butternut squash, so it has a big oh. ball at one end where all the seeds are, and the rest of it is just solid. Oh, wow. So you can slice it kind of like a steak, you know, like a tenderloin, because it doesn't have a pulpy, seedy <laughs> right, center. Right, right, right. Um, so, for example, they're trying to, they're, right. they're breeding a winter squash where the leaves and the stems and everything are all edible. Wow. And so he posted recently a dish of the stem, the hollow stem, the hollow... I saw that, yes. Cut like penne. Yes, I saw that. And cooked cacio e pepe stem. Yep, yep, yep. So um, that kind of stuff gets me super excited where you you start to get into the beauty of growing food is learning how to use all the stems and the seeds and the bits that normally you cut off and chuckle into the compost or something. Yeah. No, for sure. You know, that's definitely kind of a tradition that I grew up with Mm -hmm. is, you know, we grow stuff in the garden and then you pretty much use most of everything. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your, what are your, some of the things that, uh, that you like to make straight out of the garden? Things maybe that you've invented. Ooh, let's see. I'll have to think about that since I don't ever keep in, write anything down. Out of the garden, you know, I tend to find, and this is something that I discovered when I planted a vegetable garden because I didn't know this before, mm-hmm. that things that grow at the same time tend mm-hmm. to work really well together. Yep. You know, like like who knew nature was so smart? Yeah. Um, so that's been fun for me to kind of discover that. And naturally, like for example, ratatouille, mm-hmm. which was something that I didn't grow up with. It's It's very, very French. Yeah. Um, but my first summer, and I'd never really had it, and my first summer growing vegetables, I planted all the stuff that should be growing in the summer, right? right. I plant tomatoes and zucchini. Yeah. And then, you know, I went to harvest, and I'm like, wait a minute, like, there's a dish that has yeah. all this stuff in it. They're all right at the same time. I never knew that. What a coincidence. You know, yeah. and, um, and so ratatouille is something that 
very, very early on, I started playing with a lot, whether it's like adding pine nuts or raisins to it, making it like a sweeter, mm -hmm. more chutney style, or making it a real savory. Yeah. You know, because vegetables at the end of the day, you know, there's a spectrum of flavors that can be added to it. Absolutely. And I, think, oh, I bet the sweet, like with a kind of a South Asian vibe, really, I bet that's Yes, fantastic. it really is. Yeah, I, I think sometimes people kind of have, you know, there's the savory category. I'm making dinner or I'm making dessert. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of vegetables are actually fruits anyway, right? Absolutely. And so I think there's room to play within that. So that's been kind of fun for me. Yeah, and, and, uh, and also, I mean, especially in... Thailand and Malaysia, they use a lot of sugar in that food. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. To balance sure. the acidity and the and the chilies and and, yeah. and it's it's part of it. Um, I used I made some kind of vaguely Asian thing last night and I put some maple syrup in it because I wanted to have a little bit of that <laughs> right, right. you know that sweet edge to take you know some of the heat and the, the acidity. It's um. It's one of the things that I really like about living here is that we actually have we have maple and honey, so we have two native sugar sources. Right. Um, that I've been trying to dig into a lot. I'm about to start making maple syrup, actually, with a friend oh my of mine. Gosh, we do, it, really? we do it every winter. Yeah. You make everything. Holy I cow. I don't make everything, but I make <laughs> as much as I can. Wow. And it really connects me. I mean, first of all, it makes me happy. It doesn't feel like a chore. I do not do it for the blog. I did the blog for the cooking, right. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, which is why I was able to stick with it for so long and why I still, you know, still do this. Um, but... It really, so it makes me happy. It makes me feel accomplished. It also, I've always felt that the diet book, much like the cookbook model to me is not the way to learn to cook, the diet book model is most certainly not the way to learn to eat. Mm -hmm. And that if you want people to reform their eating habits, pleasure is the way to convince them. Right. So if you can make food that tastes like eye-wideningly delicious <laughs> yeah. in a way they're like, holy shit, I've never had something this good. Even something as simple as the pastas that we're talking about, like right. when we had our various epiphanies in Italy. They won't go back. Or if they do, they'll say, I miss that. I want to, you know? Yeah. So if you can pull people towards pleasure with proper ingredients in season, done simply, the you can provide, I think, the kind of buzz, the kind of sensory uh, stimulation that packaged food is always just, it's just mashing those right. buttons, right? No, it's absolutely. just pounding absolutely. on them. And so I think that's the way to do it, is, yeah. is just show people how to unlock the, the yeah. great potential that's in really good stuff. You know, one of the things that I love to do, and I don't know if I take some perverse pleasure in doing this, but if you tell me that you don't like something, mm. like I don't like eggplant, or I don't like Brussels sprouts, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am going to make you, you love know, it. And right. I can't tell on, you, this. I know, yeah. you know, like I just love that because, you know, a long time ago, some ancient human discovered what was edible and what wasn't. Yeah. So if you don't like something, for the most part, it's a preparation. It's not really the inherent, right. you know, fruit or vegetable. So like I've, I've converted so many people to Brussels sprouts. Good. Yeah, you know? fantastic. And, and, you know, the way that I make it, it's kind of long and involved. But at the end of the day, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> you should write it down. Yeah, I should write it down. Um, so what do you still hate? Like what, what, what do you still just can't possibly countenance on your plate? Food-wise? Yeah. I... I I love food, and mm -hmm. the weirder the better. Yeah. Like I'm one of those people. So you're not somebody who's like I can't. No, no not not even close. I, I, There's no I, one ingredient where you're just like. Uh, no, not at all. Good for you. Not at all. You know, I used to hate oatmeal growing mm. up, and I used to hate bananas mm. because of that sticky, gummy yeah. Yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Texture. Yeah. Um, but the way that Haitians make oatmeal, mm -hmm. it's very much of a custard. Mm. There's lots of milk. 
you know, there's lots of sugar, long, slow cooking time. So you don't even see that it, that it was oatmeal to begin with. Interesting. So the way that I make oatmeal, you know, I add, there's oats, but there's flax and there's, you know, all sorts of other grains in there. So it's nice and chewy and, and it's got texture, you know, and, and again, like we were saying, it's just preparation. Yeah. It's how you make it. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely true. I, I hated oatmeal because I used to have it. If my mom was out of town and I was staying at my grandparents, my grandfather would make it for breakfast and he called it hot cereal and he flavored it with nothing. <laughs> and so it was just, it was, yeah, it was like prison food. It, right, it was right, just right. sad. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So um, do you have, uh, there's probably not beyond designing, ki- do you enjoy designing kitchens as part of your work? Is like, does that factor in in some interesting way? Um, I guess if I had to say sort of what cooking brings to a design of, of a kitchen space, it's more about sort of space planning, yeah. right? Because, you know, stuff comes out of the refrigerator or the pantry, yeah. so and there's a place where the vegetables get washed, and then there's a cooking, and then there's a serving. So I definitely kind of keep that in mind, which I think is pretty traditional for most interior designers. Yeah, an efficient flow, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, for me, the storage thing is, is, is big. You know, I find a lot that... You know, if you store your pots and pans in the stove, you probably don't use the stove that much. You yeah. probably won't use the stove that much. Oh, man. So yeah. for and me... If, and if you have something that you should be using is behind three other things. Exactly. So, so, so for me, that's where kind of my cooking sort of bent comes in when I look at a kitchen design, is really making cooking utensils accessible yeah. so that people actually have a reason to, to use them and also making them visible. Like, I'm a big proponent of pantries where you can see your food, yeah. open storage where you can see your utensils mm-hmm. and, you know, Pot pots and pans. Yeah. And people, you know, I, I, I tell clients this all the time. They think I'm crazy. I say, you know, sometimes I'm inspired to make a dish by this lovely casserole that I can see absolutely. because I have open shelving. Like absolutely. you don't know where inspiration is going to come from. Yeah. You're absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wouldn't that really slow braised something right. be fantastic. And I happen to have the thing yeah, for exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the more you can see all that stuff, whether it's food stuff or, or you know, stuff that you need to, to cook with. Yeah. Um, and also, I frankly, if you're somebody who can afford to hire an interior designer, you can afford some nice cookware that looks uh, pretty. Yeah, yeah. And that also, you know, because all of this stuff is, at the end of the day, you know, f- cooking is about eating and that kind of sensory pleasure, but it's also very visual. Yeah. And I think that the more that people celebrate that visual aspect of it with lovely kind of earthenware, you know, I think it kind of, it changes the way you approach the food, you know, because definitely, it's... you know, we eat first with our eyes. I can't remember who said that, but it's absolutely true. And the, the, the aesthetic, it's the reason I try to take a walk every day or at least go out in the garden every day just to kind of feel what's, what does today make me want to cook? Right. Yeah. And, and the kitchen has the same effect, I think. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And do you, do you find people are receptive to that and you're able to influence them? Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it makes their life simpler because mm-hmm. it, you don't have to, if you don't have to remember where this thing is behind all this closed cabinetry, yeah. you know, so, so I, so I don't know if they appreciate kind of the food inspiration aspect of it, but they definitely appreciate kind of the practicality, yeah. you know, of being able to see and know where stuff is without having to memorize your entire kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any trips or anything cool planned coming up? Um, I am going to Haiti in April, mm-hmm. um, April. So we're a very religious country. So right before Easter. Mm-hmm. So um, I know that in the States, Mardi Gras is kind of a February thing, yeah. which we do have Mardi Gras in February, but our real Mardi Gras in Haiti is April. Okay. It's the three days before Easter where, you know, you get all your crazies out and then you repent and go right. to church. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, 
And so I'm going there, that's like mid-March. And all of our kind of festivals, I mean, it's all about food. It's all about food and music. And there are special foods that are made specifically to coincide you know, with those time periods. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite things is um, banana fritters, mm-hmm. which nobody ever makes in Haiti except around that time. And these are these are sweet bananas, <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not plantains. Yeah, these are sweet bananas. Yeah, sweet bananas. And, um, and it's got sort of a, it's, it looks like, um, it's a it's a beignet basically mm-hmm. right okay. so it's kind of like that fried sort of dough mm-hmm. and it's flavored with the bananas um, but you don't really have it all the time just like the subjumu you don't have you know like the kind of special occasion type sure. of things sure, sure, sure. so I'm excited to eat sort of typical Easter food that's great yeah that's great. fun well yeah. thank you for coming well it's thank you yeah no it's been great thank you for inviting me I appreciate it Marilyn Demore. Check her out at kingston.design.connection on Instagram. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net. Theme music by my son, Milo Barrett, smilobee.com. And remember, people, the most nourishing and delicious home-cooked meal you ever had still ended up in the toilet.